Hi. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about some bonus content from Spotlight On. Head over to spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog and check out Bonus Tracks, the official blog of this podcast. There you'll find special material exclusive to the website, including music recommendations, artist interviews, essays, and more. Have a look. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight shines on Vermont-based saxophonist, composer, and arranger Brian McCarthy. Brian joins us on the occasion of his most recent project, Afterlife, which was released back in late May, just a few days after we recorded this talk. Afterlife is the second album of Brian's in the non-net format, as well as the second to be brought to fruition through support from the Vermont Community Foundation and the Vermont Arts Council. Chris Pearson in the Times of London wrote, quote, Imagine John Coltrane's A Love Supreme, driven by science rather than spirituality. While Coltrane praised God, McCarthy muses musically on death and rebirth in a cyclical cosmos and how we are all linked, down to a molecular level. End quote. There's a lot of concept packed into this record, and Brian guides us through it all. We had some laughs too, though, and I think you'll enjoy our talk. Please stick around until the end of this episode to hear the opening track Nebula from Afterlife, the new album from the Brian McCarthy Nonette. Thanks for making time. It's it's great to have you. I was just in my uh, BMAC immersion session. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I spent my morning. And I have to tell you, man, I love the new record. Well, I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to digging into that with you. Where am I talking to you from? I am at uh, Command Central here in Vermont, where I spent nearly two years of my life in this room with all things music and teaching. This was like my workout room. It was my Xbox decompress room. <laughs> what do you play? I play a lot of, you know, I play things like Mass Effect, like story-driven games, kind of drawn to that sort of stuff. Did you ever play Kentucky Route Zero? No, I never did. I'm not really a gamer. I, I'm an old man. When I was a kid, I played early systems, but my son is, and uh, he was riding me hard. He was like, Dad, you have to play this game. It's a work of art. It's a masterpiece. And I finally sat down and did it. And at the end of the game, I was very emotional. It was like, it was incredibly moving. Games can be, especially those like really high budget, well, not all the high budget ones, but a lot of them can be like the art direction behind everything, the music for some of these video games, you know, back from when I, like in the early 2000s, when I was going to college, one of my teachers, Don Braden, great saxophone player, did all, you know, like music for the Cosby show and like things like that. He's wonderful, a saxophonist, great composer. So I'm playing this game, Metal Gear Solid 2. And like throughout it, I'm like, this is like live music that they used for the video game. That's a real saxophone player. Music's pretty good saxophone player. So you get done, beat the game credits roll and then it gets to to there and it's you know robin eubanks and don Braden. i was like well, don Braden, like that's my teacher right there this is incredible <laughs> so like i went back and i saw him and said i saw him like a couple days later and i was like hey don did you know you're on like the lit at the time it was like the highest budgeted video game of all time i was like did you know you're on the highest budgeted video game of all time and he goes 
Oh, is that what that was? Huh. Guess I should ask for more money. <laughs> I guess the music wasn't, uh, wasn't the highest budget. Yeah, probably not. Never is. Have you ever thought about that? Would you compose for a game of asked? I have. I, yeah, if, if asked, oh, absolutely. I would do it in a heartbeat. That would be that would be a you know like film scoring type thing uh, would be a ton of fun because that emotional element can just be drawn to a whole other level with the right type of music. And not to skip too far ahead, but I can hear that sort of emotional narrative element in what you do. I've over the last year or two have become very interested actually in video game music again through my son, but he's a big Nintendo head, and music mm -hmm. is just such an incredible part of what they take it so seriously you know oh like yeah sound design and the music but are you from vermont or is that just your base i grew up in vermont yep but i went to my undergraduate and graduate years were in new jersey at, at william patterson university so that's like where i cut my teeth or where i was reborn in that time period in that place i'm from connecticut originally oh, and yeah. I, i've spent a bunch of time in vermont it's it's probably yeah i would say it's definitely one of my favorite places i used to go camping up there a lot along the batten kill mm -hmm. oh yeah yep yeah beautiful talk to me a little bit if you would about sort of like what what's the vermont you grew up in and what was the uh, musical exposure you had early on what's you know interesting like growing up in the 90s like i'm from i'm from like the sticks basically what they call the Northeast Kingdom. So it's a small, like I, I'm from a town of less than a thousand people, like grew up on a hill on dirt road and all this kind of stuff, like farms around me. But there was a good educational musical culture back then. It was very encouraging of just all state level musicians sprinkled throughout the state. Funny enough, Lester Bowie was in Vermont doing a residency, like at the, basically at the end of his life or what turned out to be the end of his life. So there was always like these really great musicians coming up or through Vermont. Jerry Berganzi would come up a lot and do things. So there was always this, yeah, just a great sort of educational culture of jazz at that time. And I was just kind of lucky, lucky enough to be a part of that, that time period. And same thing with my wife. She and we, you know, we're both from Vermont in that same general area and same age. So we were in all states together and things like that. So there was just, there was a lot of jazz taking place in and around Vermont at that time. I don't know. It, it just connected with me somehow. Like almost like a random occurrence of events in some ways. I played saxophone. I had, I guess, a musical gift at growing up, but it wasn't until I, you know, like my parents had these VHS tapes of the Newport Jazz Festival around middle school time and they were like you should watch these things and you know check out this music i do i pop it in and it's gerald albright i was like oh yeah that's cool and it was kenny g and i was like not as cool all right and then after that then this like young dude like branford marsalis comes on i was like oh i've heard of that marsalis person before you know the family or something like that he gets on and this band this quartet starts playing and it was like a lightning bolt hit me in that moment where i was just like blown away by what they were doing. You know, it was like what they were doing was beyond my level and comprehension and all that sort of stuff, musically speaking. But like the emotional, just the realness of it, like the importance of what they were doing was very clear to me. And I was just like, I want to do that. I need to do that. Do you remember what horn he was playing? Was he playing a, a soprano or what? No, he was playing tenor. He was playing tenor. Like, it literally, and like the wonders of YouTube. I mean, like, I had this story with me for 15 years, uh, even almost like 20 years, 
And then finally, you know, when YouTube got to that critical mass stage of just basically having everything, everything. out there, I was like, let me check this out and see if I can find this brand for Marcellus Newport thing. And I didn't. I mean, it's there. And he's got a little more of the interview in it where it was like literally like the plane got in late and they were just wearing their like street traveling clothes. This was like 1987, 1988, something like that. So they were like big sunglasses. And I just I thought they looked cool as hell. And um, as it turns out, I, he was just like, yeah, I would have had a suit on, but literally just came from the airport to make this gig. So it's. <laughs> Wearing pink and orange and <laughs> yeah, it was like yeah, the eighties like neon clothes, big baggy, you know, like shorts, shirts, stuff like that, like funny, and like the clothes, the sunglasses were probably like six dollars sunglasses, but like giant, they just look really cool. So I was yeah, you know, I was just kind of taken by the whole thing. He's such an interesting figure because you know I think of like you know, obviously you think of Winton and Winton would probably never get on the bandstand in his street clothes. Oh God, no. and yeah. and. Branford being sort of, this is just one listener's perspective, but I think of him as like the looser, even though he could be a little bit more like edgy and cranky too. Like I think of Winton as pretty dogmatic, but Branford's definitely got a point of view. But the thing that's interesting to me about him is I feel like the way he comes in and out of the conversation, like he doesn't strike me as the same consistent presence as like a Joshua Redman or just where he sits in his generation is... It's hard for me to pin down. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. He just, he doesn't care what anyone thinks and he's just going to speak his mind. That's where Branford's at. Branford's just, listen, I'm going to tell you how it is. Like from his perspective, he's just going to, and then people love to take him out of context, especially nowadays. What's the new one? My, my students at University of Vermont were talking about, Branford's talking about giant steps because they're like, it was a, a jazz theory class and we had gotten to like the giant steps portion of it. Mm -hmm. And so the students were like, oh, have you seen this video? Oh, have you seen this video? And you know, it's like the taken out of context is like Branford saying giant steps is dumb and nobody wants to hear it sort of thing. I'm like, no, why go back and watch the whole interview. What Branford's making, he always makes really good points. Like I, I love what Branford says because he's always making really good points. If you watch the whole interview, like this one in particular, what he's saying is that if you're going to go out and you're just going to build your career on, I'm going to go out and play Giant Steps Changes every night and release an album of just like, I call it Olympic jazz, where it's just like, it's about the virtuosity of navigating difficult chord changes and doing the astrophysicists of sounds within the sounds to connect. And like, yeah, that, that stuff is really great and incredibly hard to do. But your audience is going to be this big. And as long as you're aware, like I've been saying that for years, as long as you're okay with not being and not having a wide view or spectrum of audience, then do that. Do your thing. If that's what artistically fuels you, then do that. But understand that the general public wants to hear Coltrane ballads, Coltrane like with Johnny Hartman, that like you're going to get a much more melody. More, yeah, more something that a general audience can easily connect to. And therefore, you will have more people that can do it. But Branford's not saying like Giant Steps is still like, I've heard Branford play Giant Steps. The dude sounds very good on that. You know, like he, he knows how to make that sound. But, you know, you get me and just random people out on the street, like 10 people, random people on the street. It's going to be me listening to that going, wow, this is really great. And everyone else being like, yeah, this is why I don't like jazz, because it's just like, oh, uh. too mathematical. Yeah. yeah, it's like they don't necessarily have the listening literacy, I guess, 
or education or exposure to like understand what's going on. Like there, there needs to be kind of like a level of, of listening education before you hear stuff like that and go, wow, this is like some high level art and I get it, you know? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. This is a topic that comes up in the conversations I have here with some regularity when I'm, when I'm speaking, especially to, to horn players or jazz musicians, which is what softened up your ears so that you were able to hear Branford when you were watching that videotape? What were you listening to that prepared you? It's interesting because I, I went through, especially, you know, we're talking about middle school, high school, like those early years in the 90s for me in the nowhere Vermont. I was really into Branford, but I wasn't into like later Coltrane or like mid-career Coltrane, I should say. When earlier Coltrane, I was, you know, I was into like the stuff with Miles and things like that. I was like totally there. How late did you go? When did you get off the bus? I think I got off the bus when dear old Stockholm sort of thing. I think that's where I was just like, it, which is like to me, like very, like now I am, I want to get in a DeLorean and travel back in time and just see younger me and be like, Psh, keep listening and then just leave. But it was just like, it was too like that level of, of language. I hadn't hit that yet. I just wasn't ready for it at that time. But it's funny to say that like Coltrane, I didn't connect with, but Branford, I was like buying, I literally had all of Branford's records and was just like loving all of it. You know, I think it was just because I would go, I would see Branford live and in person. So there was that psychological, like physiological connection to a living human being, as opposed to the legend of et cetera, et cetera, you know, here are the recordings of them. And, and back in those days, we didn't have the YouTubes. Couldn't really see vid- even videos of John Coltrane at that time, unless if it was airing on PBS or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's actually when you were speaking about YouTube earlier, I think about Coltrane sort of, McCoy Tyner is actually my guy, but obviously as a result, Coltrane as well. For me, like my peak Coltrane would be that like 61, 62, the stuff with Eric Dolphy, that that fall of 61, the Village Vanguard stuff mm-hmm. that was so, I still go back and read the downbeat that came out the spring after that of like basically the editors of downbeat holding Coltrane and Dolphy account for this awful music they <laughs> they dared yeah. to make, this not jazz music. <laughs> and that's the thing, like, you know, because again, like for my generation, I'm 42, like my generation didn't grow up in that era. Like I only know Coltrane as the legendary figure in jazz history. In his time, they, that's not what he was to the, you know, to downbeat in the critics. There were, he was getting blasted a lot of the time. It wasn't until like after he passed, really, that the critics went, oh, God, how did, why did we ever say that, you know, about him? Yeah, that the that and that was like for me, that was probably like junior, senior year of high school where it was like finally like I was just absorbing probably everything up until like late Coltrane. I was just like there for all of it. You know, that the Village Vanguard box set was like one of my cherished Christmas presents where I was like, this is I need this. When they put out the whole run, that was like, to me, that I still, it, it might be the most played thing in my Spotify. Like the fact that you can listen to 
whatever it is, four or five versions of India or whatever. <laughs> I can't yeah. get enough of that. The intensity. <laughs> yeah. That, Cause it's like, even now, decades later, you listen to it and use that intensity. There's something, you know, and again, Branford, Branford talks about it, this kind of stuff of like when he was talking to Elvin and all that, and you got to die for a, you got to die for a dude, you know, you got to die for your musicians on stage. That was real. Like that was their mindset of this music. Isn't just music. It's important. Like this is important statements and not just in a musical way, but in a life historical, there's a lot of history behind this music. And one of the reasons why it's so important to that art level of jazz versus maybe like the entertainment level of jazz, you know, people are like, oh, influenced by jazz. Like, yeah, I mean, the influence by jazz, that's great. That's definitely a great thing. But, you know, a lot of people like to use the cachet of the, you know, that four letter word jazz with what they do without necessarily digging inside of the history and understand and like really realizing the importance of it and where this music comes from and what it's had to go through in order to be where it is today and 10 years ago, 50 years ago and wherever it's going in the future. As a lay person, I can definitely agree with all that, but I definitely can see how that, that perspective for you may be through the lens of somebody who's an educator as well, and that being so important. And I wonder, talking about the history of jazz or talking about what the totality of jazz, if you will, do you distinguish or do you, is there a hierarchy for you in terms of importance between the history and the cultural context and history and theory, which is more important? Definitely, I'm going to go with the history, the like the cultural connection or like the just the cultural history of the music and the development of the music. Because the music developed before the theory was there. Like all the DNA that makes up jazz when you go into blues and gospel music, all of that music, like that, there's no theory behind that. It was just language. That's all it was. And so like so many of those early early era musicians they were some were university trained some like their parents might have been university trained uh, in a very classical mindset of things that got to pass down to their to their kids but it wasn't like you know there were no jazz schools so like the best education that you could get was either through having an educated family member or maybe you did go to a university and, and get some formal quote unquote formal education there but there was no like there was no jazz education in a scholastic sense until you get into the 80s, basically, in the 1980s. So all of that language was developing just in a natural way. There was no, like, rules that you must follow to make this, you know, X plus Y equals jazz sort of thing. That didn't exist. It was all on the bandstand. It was just developing in that straightforward language way. Sure, there's, there is theory behind it, but that theory came, like, the way, you know, like, in a theory class, I tell all of my students, this is the autopsy of what, what the music is. Like people played this music and spoke it. And then the autopsy person came in and said, this is what they're doing. And this is how this connects to that. And the voice leading of this note into here and that to that. And the, like they weren't really thinking that. They were just speaking in a way that made sense and it just worked. So it's like the development of even like, you know, like, human language. There was no, like our language didn't develop through books. It certainly evolved at some point. You could talk to a, a linguistic person and they could better speak upon this, but, you know, people were communicating with one another who literally can't, who are completely illiterate. 
you don't have to understand grammar in order to have a conversation with someone through verbal communication. And that's what jazz, how jazz developed primarily was through that way. And then the theory comes in afterwards of like you can, someone can analyze a transcription of a John, a John Coltrane solo and be like, oh, this is what John, like, and there are tendencies to like, you know, like there are tendencies that people have and aesthetics, I guess, that they would have and they would do, but they weren't necessarily so formally educated in that way where they're like, I've got to connect and voice lead this note, which is the seventh that will go into the third of this. And we do that to like, because there is a certain level of understanding of that. Like when I go back and I listen to when I hear people improvising over a blues or just some straightforward standard changes or something like that, there are tendencies, there are things that make grammatical sense through this abstract language that they just know how to speak it. And when you listen to it, you just kind of, you know, it works like the aesthetic is there, the tension to release. That's to me bridging that, like making sure that doesn't get lost with my students where it's like, I can teach you the autopsy version of things. And I do, I give you the, like the mathematical things that why this works and this goes into here. But at the same time, don't lose track of just the linguistic aesthetic of what you're saying, because like I, I had that, like that's kind of how I learned jazz growing up here in Vermont was X plus Y equals jazz. I make sure you outline this and do this. And there are certain rules that you cannot break. You're like, never play a flat seven against a major seven or a flat three against a major seven chord. That doesn't work. And then I connect up with Clark Terry. And that dude, he's like using the language of the blues and all the stuff on these major seven, major nine chords. My brain went, wait, I was told you can't do that. But damn, this sounds, that's, that's what I want to sound like. That's how I want to like communicate. So it was kind of like in those moments of, yeah, all these rules are there after the fact. And the ultimate governor of all of this stuff is the music. If the music says it works, it doesn't matter what the rule book says. If the music says, yeah, that, that works, that's the ultimate judge right there. So aesthetics above all. Absolutely, yeah. Because it's like, you know, like you can go through all of those rules of don't play a, a major seven on a flat, on a dominant seven chord, you can't do that sort of thing. But people do that all the time. And it sounds, it can sound great because the surroundings of the statement that the musician is making justifies what takes place. That's, you know, where we get into the realm of free jazz. Oh, free jazz. You know, being in Vermont, a lot of people, jam bands and freedom of thoughts and minds and don't tell Vermonters what to do, man. They don't like to be told what to do. They want to have that freedom to be as they want to be second only to your neighbors in new hampshire yeah, exactly except you know <laughs> the whole we just we don't we don't live free like we like to live free but the second part or the dies you know kind of like, like <laughs> a little too intense for Vermont. <laughs> but yeah like the idea of free jazz gets overused in so many things with a lack of understanding of what that statement really means you know like oh free jazz means i could play whatever i want and therefore it's good. No, you can't use that as a blanket justification for just playing whatever you want. Because if you just put a bunch of random words down on a page, that doesn't make a story. And a lot of the times I'll hear people try to use that justification, like younger or less experienced jazz musicians going, yeah, I just want to play like free jazz, man. That's what it's cool. And they like use this, you know. In other words, I don't want to practice. 
That's what I'm getting at. They're like this. They think it's an easy pathway to like, I'm playing great and high art. I'm like, eh, time out. Actually, what you're talking about, the idea of free, like the free jazz is the freedom to be less constrained by maybe 251 or something like that. Not, But that's not even the idea of not having to conform to very standard rules in a maybe scholastic sense. Like I can play whatever I want, comma, but what I'm playing still has to be coherent. Like I still have to be speaking coherently in order to, and therefore if I can figure out a way to speak coherently and play whatever I want, that's the, you know, almost like the ultimate goal of jazz in general is to make a honest, true, meaningful statement without being confined by standard scholastic rules, I guess. Yeah. Could you, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot, could you give me an example maybe of a musician, a jazz musician that a jazz fan might know of, a name from, let's say, the Pantheon, or the lesser or even or greater Pantheon, a name mm-hmm. who is an example of one that is not necessarily is still a great, but is not necessarily conservatory or formally trained versus one who is a great and actually came from that pre-80s, more conservatory-based training ground. I think to pick someone who would be in that, that category who's highly trained in that conservatory way would be maybe some like Bill Evans, which is mm-hmm. a pretty big name, but very high. Like you know, he was very, I mean, he literally went to a conservatory played flute, French horn, like he was highly, highly trained in that way. And then someone who wasn't like not a giant name that was not conservatory trained. I'm trying to think of someone like, like Phineas Newborn Jr. I'm trying to think if he actually had, I don't think Finn, I don't think Finus was like conservatory trained. He was just one of those like pure genius minds that really was on a whole other level. That like probably most people don't really even like even in the realm of jazz, people will overlook Phineas Newborn Jr. Because, just you know, there was a lot of other issues going on with him, just like mentally speaking. And he and therefore didn't record a ton of albums. Yeah. But in terms of like in the pantheon of just like all instrumentalists, like you know, literally every instrument from voice, drums, saxophones piano or guitar all that kind of stuff we talk about art tatum being like especially in a jazz history class like art tatum is like the epitome of nobody could play higher louder faster cleaner than art tatum with the exception of maybe some people will say oscar peterson oscar was very trained he was highly trained so that I, you could replace bill evans with oscar peterson who in canada will like they literally have an oscar peterson day that's how heralded he is there. And in the United States, the general jazz listener, probably if you mention Oscar Peterson, they may go, oh, yeah, I, I probably I think I've heard of him. Because Bill Evans probably a higher known name than even an Oscar Peterson in the general public, yeah. I would say, just because of the, you know, kind of blue in Bill Evans being on that. But Oscar, yeah, Oscar highly trained. And then people would say Oscar Peterson's even a little bit. And Oscar would always be like, whoa, everybody settled slow your roll. Like, don't compare me to the great Art Tatum like that. I, I thank you for the compliment, but uh, no thank you as well. 
And then even above that, I would, from a just outside perspective, Finney Snowboard Jr. would be the person that I haven't heard anybody, anybody play that clean, that fast, that, and navigate the language in a meaningful way. Like, it's a whole other, like, just jaw-dropping, eyes-stop-blinking moment where you're like, wow, this is... Wow. I didn't know a human being could do this sort of thing. And you get that with Oscar and you get that with Art Tatum. But yeah, Finest was just, a, he was almost a step above both of them in that sense too. It's incredible. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. Did you know that Spotlight On is completely self-funded by the team that produces it? We're always looking for ways to keep the podcast self-sufficient without sacrificing the listener experience or the integrity of the show. The best way we could think to do that was to ask for the support of our listeners. Please consider making a donation to help cover our annual operating expenses. Go to SpotlightOnPodcast.com and click the word Donate. If you can, please do. If you cannot, please don't worry about it. Just continue to enjoy the show. We're happy to have you as a listener. Thanks. And now, back to Spotlight On. There's a lot more I could I could ask you along these lines, but I, I want to talk about afterlife, and there's a lot I want to ask you about it. First, could you tell me a little bit about the role that the Vermont Arts Council grant played in helping you realize the album? I, I've gotten two of those in the past and two of the Vermont Community Foundation grants to help make or start some of these projects. Like my previous, not my first not an album, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, started off as a Vermont Arts Council grant. It was just like all of this non-ant stuff was really just almost like a random occurrence in some ways because my, my wife and I were had just released a quintet record, like small group record, because we were trying to strat strategize at the beginning of my like professional, like outside of college professional career. It's going to be easier to tour a quartet or a quintet, like keeping costs down and things like that. In in college, you know, composition and arranging background, I just seemed to have a natural gift to that as well. Did a lot of non-net writing back then, and I really enjoyed it because of bands like the Joe Lovano non-net. Just loved that band, loved that sound. Um, George Coleman octet, like these like mini big band sounds I really just loved and always loved just writing for it. We were planning, all right, so in a couple of years, we're going to release another quartet record in like three or four years. And I was like, Oh, three or four years. It's a long time. What if I did a non-et project like in between? And we said, that's expensive to do something like that. Let's apply to this Vermont Arts Council grant. This was, you know, like 2014. Let's apply to Vermont Arts Council grant and see if they'll give us some money to write the project. And then we'll just do that and be done with it. So we got it. We got the grant. I was like, oh, cool. We get to do this project. And so when we premiered it, the, uh, you know, it's like all Civil War material themed historical type stuff. And we're like, all right, cool. We're going to do this, you know, one night here in Burlington and that'll be it. And then we'll move on to the quartet project. Then one night turned into two nights. They were like, actually, I think this is going to be a really good project. Let's do two nights rather than just one night. Oh, cool. Two night premiere for this project. Great. Let's do that. And then when, like after the first night, like, people were coming up in a very different way, like talking to me in the sense of like, where have you been hiding this from us all this time? Like, where is like, you can do this? 
people were just like, you have to make it. You've got to make an album. This is an incredible project. And you've got like, and it was, it was just kind of like out of left field for my wife and I, because we weren't expecting that at all. We were just like, cool, we're going to do this and then move on to the next thing. And people were like, question, when is this coming out? And it was just like, we didn't, I think at that time, we didn't expect that we could elicit that sort of emotional response and like wide range of emotional response from an audience. We were just doing what we knew how to do as best as we could do it. We're going to do a project. We're going to do it to the best of our ability and make it uh, important for us. And then if anyone else agrees with that, great. I mean, which to me, I think is like the ultimate artistic endeavors to like create a project that's meaningful and honest to you and genuine to you and then having the audience be right there with you as well and so that was just unexpected like whoa okay i guess we can do that like that art thing all right cool like game on but since then like you know we've we've always applied to like i said vermont community foundation and then again vermont arts council during the pandemic we got to write the afterlife music and then the Vermont Arts, Arts Council came in with, I might be getting that backwards. They came in during the pandemic to help us finish recording the project. Uh, so that's, it's always been, they've been a piece of the puzzle, both Vermont Arts Council and Vermont Community Foundation of creating these projects, either the initial kind of spark to write the music or some more finances to help take it over the hump of uh, creating the album in the end. You know, honestly, not every state necessarily has that support system in there. It's nice that the resources like that are available at some level here in Vermont. I wish there were, you know, certainly if I'm in a larger state, there like New York has larger local grants that you can you can get into. But Vermont's a, we're a, it's a small state, so they don't have the size of the fundings that other places do. But Still, it's a piece of it, and it's an important piece of that. Are the grants competitive, or do you find that if you, if you submit, you'll generally get accepted? They are competitive. When I got the grant in 2014, and then, you know, like there's a time period where you can't apply for like you know, three or four years or five years or something like that. And then, so the next grant cycle that I applied for, I did not get, and then applied the next year, and then I got it. So I'm in one of those now. I think I'm in one of the like the waiting periods where I'm like, oh, I can't apply again for another like another year or two or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, they they are competitive. There there is a certain level of competition for them. Not as because it's not just a music, it's not just a music competition sort of thing. It's all arts, literature, like sculpting, painting, all that kind of stuff. And I've been on a, a few of those councils too, like as a panelist from time to time to see the projects that come in. Can you talk to me a little bit about the sort of unique palette of a Nanette? I find large ensembles intimidating. I remember it was about 30 years ago now, I saw Jerry Mulligan with an octet or a Nanette. Yeah, that's another one, yep. It was like he was driving a freight train. In fact, there were a couple of times where he stopped the band and would get them back in time. Like, it looked like hard. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if you could talk about your attraction to it as well as any particular challenges. I hate myself. That's not. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, literally, you know, like when you're talking about once you get to five horns and above, 
you're in the realm of big band, like, you know, maybe yeah. it's not a full jazz orchestra, but you're in that realm of that. And when you've got a big band or a jazz orchestra, literally we tell drummers, like you're the bus driver, like you're driving this bus. It's a massive sort of thing when you get so many human beings trying to be on the same page and create this highly, generally highly orchestrated type music. Hard is definitely, uh, the, yeah, that would be accurate. It's, it's, cha it, or it's challenging because of you've got so many moving parts that you've got to keep together and moving in. Uh, you need someone masterminding it that understands where things can go wrong and how to mitigate that process so with, with what could go wrong. How do I set up something that would make sure that it doesn't? Especially with this uh, this Afterlife project, I mean, there's music that's in there that's like in 11, you know, like phrasings of 11, 15, different time signatures, you know, like there's all di different kinds of stuff going on there. And listening back to it, you don't, you don't necessarily hear that. And that's kind of the idea. You know, I'm not writing things to be like, I'm not writing hard music for the sake of hard music or music to be hard for the sake of being hard. It's just what the music wants to be in this particular case and I, I guess just kind of like and then afterwards i go oh look at that it's that's an 11 <laughs> how about that <laughs> there's something that that i want to latch on to there which is there's a delicacy or a, an airiness or i'm struggling an ambience to the music that i don't necessarily associate with larger ensemble playing you know there's not a cacophony of people it's not so densely arranged mm -hmm. highly arranged because of I would imagine because that had to be deliberate to get that spacious sound, but it doesn't come across as like, let's throw a non at, at this all at Yeah, once. like every, everyone all the time at the same time, constantly doing blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, and that's the, that's the fun thing with a mini big band or this non at when I've got the instrumentation that I have, like the option of alto or soprano saxophone, two tenors, trombone, baritone saxophone trumpet or flugelhorn through that there's a way to emulate like a saxophone section in a big band because i've got four out of five saxophones there anyways i can add a trombone into the middle of that and i've got all five parts harmonically speaking for that i can emulate a trombone section by trombone as a lead voice tenor baritone saxophone gives that like quasi trombone section I can get a trumpet section with trumpet, soprano saxophone, trombone kind of high up. So like be like there's always a way to kind of make those standard jazz orchestra slash big band sounds within there. And then just understanding how to orchestrate that in a musical way that makes sense. It doesn't sound hopefully it doesn't sound like you're going along and then all of a sudden you just like the rug gets pulled out from under you and like saxophone section now. It's like yeah. understanding how to like drive that bus into the direction of get into the lane of like now we're in a saxophone solely sort of thing. Like it, people will end up probably kind of like playing two parts at the same time. Like I'll write music where it's almost like in a like a box study sort of way where it's like I'm playing this upper melody part. And then the response to it is with the other horn sections where I've got to drop down on my horn and play this and then back to the melody again. So it's like schizophrenic at some points. A lot of people will listen to this non-et and they, they'll come back to me and they'll go, wait a second, there was only nine people? I thought that was a full big band. Like the way you're just writing this sounds like there's more than nine people. I'm like, oh, cool. You noticed that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a compliment. <laughs> what I was going for the whole time. Would you tell me a little bit about the title and concept? 
my mm-hmm. understanding is that it evolved from how you first, what you first thought it might be? Yeah. So when we got done Better Angels, after, you know, we released that album in 2017, my wife and I immediately pivoted into, okay, what's next? What's the next project that we're going to get into? And we just like green light thinking in terms of, all right, let's just, whatever ideas that seem meaningful, let's just start talking about them. And one of the first concepts that kind of popped out that seemed like, because we're thinking about what's meaningful to us, but also at the same time, what could be meaningful to a general audience as well. Not just like, because there's a certain selfishness behind art. Art has to kind of, by definition, be selfish for the artist. But I don't want to completely disregard an audience as well. So it's like finding that middle ground of what's meaningful for probably both sides. So one of those things that we came across was the idea of afterlife, like different concepts of the afterlife uh, through different belief systems and religions, Christianity, even thinking about going into like ancient times of like ancient Egyptian cultural afterlives and uh, Greek mythology. And, you know, we were talking about that. I also wanted to include essentially a scientific one as well. It's like the idea. And so I, when, I, when I started talking about the concept of like, yeah, you know, everything that you see around us, all the atoms that make up our bodies were once a part of a giant structure before us that then essentially become and make up everything else around us. And so as I'm talking about that, Linda, my wife goes, that's the project. The way that you're speaking about this part right now I think that's the entirety of what this project should be because it was the most meaningful thing to to me as the person who's going to write the music, which she knew like that will make it more, the music will be more genuine that way. Like, so I think this is the project that we're digging into with the idea that what comes after the life of what was here before us, as in, I think uh, in, in astronomy, like our sun is a, I think they call it a third generation sun, where there's this is the third generation of a star. There were two others that existed, exploded, condensed, and be- became another star for us. So, like to me, like it was, it's a fascinating thing to think about. Like everything that makes us us was once a giant star before us with a solar system and a whole like life of its own. In that sense, so who's to say that what we're living here now isn't the afterlife of what existed before us? So that was the initial concept there. Is that a concept that's just fun for you to contemplate or does it tie into any, is there a deeper practice for you? Like where, how does this fit into, into the unified theory of Brian? <laughs> I think it's I think it's both actually, which makes it so kind of meaningful and, and genuine for me. There is that deeper meaning of there's a lot of conflict. There's, we've we've seen a lot of conflict on this planet. A lot of people see themselves as being very different from all these other people and things like that. But ultimately, we're so connected that even the molecules that make up our own body were once a part of the same thing. We're once all one. And that sort of deep and meaningful beyond what you kind of see or think about, generally speaking. There is that deeper meaning to it, along with just the, the fascination of that concept of how do you go from being that one massive stellar object, becoming this motionless like aftermath of this stellar object that then 
recondenses to become another stellar object along with all of the planetary bodies around us and eventually human beings. Like we're probably the most unique thing in, in the solar system because of that, because you have this, this species that can create really incredible things and really terrifying things. That's a, it's a fascinating concept when you think about it. There's so many strands of micro and macro around um, unity, connection, how that relates to an ensemble of people, mm -hmm. even coming together. That earlier history you talked about being part of a lineage or a tradition or, you know, this, the, there's almost no sense in untangling it all. It all makes sense. It all makes sense in one, one soup. Could you talk to me a little bit about the unique aspects of having a working relationship with your significant other? Yeah. I feel like sometimes we could set up a camera and sell tickets to the event. And sometimes let's talk about that. <laughs> no, it's, you know, that's because especially nowadays, I literally cannot think of another artist out there that collaborates like this. Historically, that happened so often. Even if you talk about Miles Davis and Kind of Blue, that's the all-time sellingest album. And for good reason. Like That's like when people are like, I need to get into jazz. What's the first? I'm like, Kind of Blue, get Kind of Blue. That's the, you start there, start there, all right? Because... It's like the perfect album. It really is. And that album, like that session was such a collaboration between Miles and Bill Evans and everybody else on there. There was a lot of collaboration going on there, like production that would kind of happen in the moment while they were doing that. But then you get just that type of production collaboration was happening all throughout jazz history. And I think, you know, over the past 20 to 30 years, that sort of collaboration has been lost for, I guess, a number of reasons, because there isn't as much money to be made. So you don't necessarily have that production editor collaboration that exists for a lot of people. But for my generation, especially like our art, like that's mine. Don't tell me what to do with my art. That's like, this is my perspective and that's what it has to be. And if it's like to hell with everyone else sort of thing. And you get overly... You know, it can get overly selfish and overly caught up in your own thing. And admittedly, like I was right there with it. I was like, why would I let anybody else tell me what to do with my art or my perspective? Until Linda and I connected up. Her, you know, because she went to Berkeley College of Music, undergraduate in, in jazz studies performance. She understands the music just as well as anybody else and has a different perspective than I do and has a really great production perspective as well. You know, basically... To, like to put it short, it's like get over yourself. Like as an artist, like you, you first you have to get over yourself of the greatness of you or like the infallibility of your art and your perspective. Get over yourself. Listen to some other people's input, but people's input that you trust because, you know, I get plenty of like, oh, you should do this. And why, especially doing a, a Civil War Nana album. Believe me, I got plenty of emails but people wanted to meet me out in the parking lot afterwards, you know, basically. And let me tell you something about this. Whoa. I'm not talking about listening to those perspectives. I'm talking about listening to perspectives of unique individuals, remarkable individuals that you can trust. That's Linda and I. Like, I trust Linda's perspective because, for example, when we're not just talking about the, the conceptual part of the album, 
But when I get to the writing part of it and I'm doing something and I'm just the, through the entire process, I'm like, hey, Linda, check out this melody or this part of the melody that I'm going in. And just leave it at that and to get her honest opinion of like, what do you think of the direction so far? And then the input will come in of, well, it's a little too, you know, it might be like too noty, might, um, there's nothing to like hold on to. I, I don't, I'm not getting melody that I can hold on to, things like that. Or it'll just be like, yeah, I can, oh, I love the melody, how it's doing this. And so we'll go back and forth like that for 12 months, 14 months, however long the, uh, the writing part of the project takes. And there'll be times where they're like little details where I'm like this, like three notes right here. It'd be like three notes. And she'll want to cut that and be like, no, like, I don't really, I don't know why that's there. I don't really like that. And I'm like, well, no, but th this is, you know, expanding to prom this other thing. And she'd be like, yeah, I'm not getting that. I think we should cut it. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to cut it. It's like, and then with the, all of a sudden we're like, oh, it's like the thing in series where it's like, no, I'm not cutting it. You need to cut it. And then we need to go to separate rooms for a little bit. And then when we come back, what will happen is, how about if I add this section? Like, you know, like basically it's like the perspective of what she's trying to say and what I'm trying to say both have, they're both valid. So it's finding a way to make both of us go, oh, okay, yeah, now I'm completely fine with it. And that's what ends up happening between, again, when you trust somebody that much and can you can get into heated perspectives on what we're trying to make here that's an important like you know you have the right person when you know you can talk about it in an honest way like that no i believe that this is the way it needs to be no i believe this is the way it needs to be we're both kind of right so what do we need to do in here to bridge this and then when we do that and we uh, we do it quite successfully every time is that the music ends up being better for it. I wish more people would, I, or I shouldn't say wish because it's a hard thing to find. I would love to see more people collaborate with someone that they trust like that, the, the way that uh, Lynn and I trust each other. One of my favorite parts about that, that example or that story you just told is that the resolution is not cutting those three notes, but you adding more. Yeah. And and on and, and sometimes sometimes it is cutting those notes. We're like, you know, yeah, you're right. This makes no sense. I don't even know. I just thought it was cool. And I went yeah. in there and just like, nah, it's not that cool. You know, there'll be moments like that where it's like if what she's saying really did like the, the, most of the time it's do more of this. I'm like, all right, cool, yeah, you're right. We'll do more of that. Or, you know, like cut that those two bars. Oh yeah, that's so much better like that. But there'll be times where we're just like adamant about the rightness of what this is. And we go that extra distance to find a way to make it work. Given the realities of economics and geographies and schedules and everything else, do you get to take this music to the stage? I do. Funny enough, in a sad sort of way, like right in 2020 was where I started getting outside of Vermont with the Nonette. Um, we played down at um, the uh, William Patterson Jazz Room series which is my alma mater. So it was like a big, you know, I was like, oh my God, it's such like an honor for me to like, because I, I played countless ones going to school there for so long. Yeah. But then to be now like the guest artist coming back at this legendary series was, you know, kind of like the cool, like now we're starting to come out and play, play outside of Vermont. Because in Vermont, yeah, I, I, I play this stuff often. Like Vermont gets to be treated to that being my home base getting the premieres of it or maybe a resurgence of it or something like that. Back in, yeah, March 8th and 9th of 2020, 
Yeah, that's and I that's how I ended up getting COVID um, to, from that little trip down to because like William Patterson is just just outside of 10, 15 minutes outside of Manhattan. But it was like just starting to break out of there. And then, bam, that hit. And it was just kind of like, well, OK, then. So, you know, now uh, now with this new album, I'm hoping that I'm definitely not going to pick up where I left off. But, I, you know, I have to kind of do that legwork to try to get it going again, uh, get some grant money to be able to play outside of Vermont to do that. So that's, yeah, that's the hope of the new albums that we can start to build back to there. That's great. I love to hear the different ways artists answer this question. And I'm curious, so much work goes into creating this piece, right? The album is the work of art to an extent. Yep. You complete it. There's a master, it goes somewhere and then there's an interval and it gets birth to the public. And then you do things like this to, to try to get it heard, maybe do some performances. Where in that cycle does your attention start to turn to the next thing? And do you know right now what the next thing is? I think yesterday my wife and I were on a walk. Like we could like for walks and talk about business and things like that. We have already started to talk about what the next project is. Yeah, once once you get that mastered art's done like this thing shows up at your doorstep in giant boxes of things you're like oh cool there it is all right what's next that's like my brain starts to think about like or at least there's a voice in the amongst many voices in my head there's a voice in the back of my head that starts to go like to that says that okay so i'm gonna start thinking about what the next project's gonna be like are we gonna add like another instrument into it. Are we going to have a guitar in it? Or what's the theme? All of the theme, the theme, and we'll talk about that with Linda. So it kind of like starts pretty quickly once that, that finished product arrives. And at least just in like the initial wheels starting to spin. And if not even just for the whole, like, how far can I push the next project thought? Because, you know, from Better Angels to Afterlife, I definitely pushed on Afterlife a lot more then through that process, you learn a lot of things. You're like, all right, I've learned that this works and I can do this. And oh, that was actually really cool. I think. And so now with the next, like, I, I can't help but think about like, all right, so let's go a little bit further next time on the next project. So even if it's just that, I don't know what the next project concept will be. I don't necessarily know when it will be, but I'm pretty sure that it's going to push even further than the last one. Cause I just, I can't help it. Like, for the love of the game, I just I just want to keep balling. I guess. You know? <laughs> well, I'll look forward to uh, to finding out uh, what the next what the next thing is. Hearing it. Thank you so much, Brian McCarthy, and as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of Twenty Three Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson, with theme music by Cuburn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.
Hear the opening track Nebula from Afterlife, the new album from the Brian McCarthy Nonette. Mm-hmm. 